الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين ما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا قوا أنفسكم وأهليكم نارا وقودها الناس والحجارة عليها ملائكة غلاذ شداد لا يعصون الله ما أمرهم ويفعلون ما يؤمرون my dear respected, most honorable elders, beloved brothers and sisters in Islam, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. First and foremost, we begin as usual by thanking and glorifying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for enabling us with this unique opportunity on the most beautiful of days to congregate in His house to glorify Him to praise him, to send salutations upon his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And we pray that Allah azza wa jal will continue to facilitate such opportunities for us in the future, insha'Allah. The topic that I'm going to talk about today is something that is incredibly sensitive and very much an issue that sometimes in our tradition or within our culture or our cultural heritage, has always been brushed underneath the carpet. It's an issue that we feel like it should be discussed behind closed doors, uh, as opposed to being brought out into the public and social sphere. But I'm going to give reasons, some reasons, as to why it's important, not only is it imperative for us to discuss these issues, but to find tenable solutions for some of the problems that we face in modern-day Britain uh, in the 21st century. Now, we're living in a society and a community that sometimes promotes values um, and certain social norms that, uh, that do not reflect our culture and our tradition, that go against some of our principles, our Islamic our uh, religious principles. And it's imperative that we understand these issues with sensitivity. And in order for us to move beyond them and to find tenable solutions for them, we have to bring them out into the social sphere. We have to talk about them. We have to discuss them. No matter how uncomfortable it may seem, no matter how uh, uncomfortable we are at even bringing those issues up, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was, he himself stated, that I have been sent for all people, all of mankind. What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in the Quran regarding the sending of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not say, that we have not sent you except as a mercy lil muslimin o lil mu'minin. He did not say that we've sent you as a mercy only for Muslims or only for believers. What did, the, what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ We've sent you as a mercy for all of the worlds, for every single alam. The in the tafsir of this ayah, many of the exegetes, many of the, the uh, mufassirin of the Qur'an, they state 
that this goes back to that very first verse of Surah Al-Fatiha, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says what? What we recite five times a day in our daily prayers. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. All praises for Allah who is what? The Lord of all of the worlds. So therefore, the exegetes and the mufassireen have stated that everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a rub for, the Prophet sallallahu was sent as a mercy. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a rub of everything. He's the creator and the Lord, the sustainer of everything. And for everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created, for everything that he resides over as, 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 as the Lord, everything that he created, the Prophet sallallahu is a rahmah for that. The Prophet sallallahu has been sent as a rahmah for that. So we need to take that into perspective. We as Muslims need to understand that. That we claim the Prophet sallallahu to be our own because we are his followers. We claim the Prophet sallallahu to be ours because why? Because we're from the ummah of the Prophet sallallahu and we pray, we make dua that on Yawm Al-Qiyamah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recognizes us and the Prophet sallallahu recognizes us as members of his ummah. We pray for that. We desire that. We want that. But in order for us to be that, we need to understand how the Prophet ﷺ not only served as a role model for us, he was a role model in his entire being for everybody to follow. Everyone, irrespective of uh, who they are, irrespective of where they've come from, what they understand, what language they speak, the color of their skin, their traditions, their cultures that are, uh, that are independent for them. We need to understand that the Prophet ﷺ was sent to all of them as a role model. He can inspire each and every individual. And he is worthy of inspiration for each and every individual. And when we look at his life, what do we find? Did the Prophet ﷺ ever shy away from talking about sensitive issues? Did the Prophet ﷺ not use his platform as the last and final and most beloved messenger of Allah to not discuss those issues that were affecting his community? No. You'll find that whenever the Prophet ﷺ was asked a question, he always provided an answer. Never did the Prophet ﷺ say, how dare you ask me that? Have you no shame? You should know the answer to that question. Or these types of responses, they weren't in the dictionary of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ, he always responded. Whoever asked him a question, whatever that question may be. And by Allah, if you look through the sunnah of, sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, you know you, what you will find? You will find some pertinent, important questions. The likes of companions like Abu Huraira and others who would ask the Prophet ﷺ about the signs of the last day. What's going to come? What's going to happen? So, so that I may prepare myself against the fitan, against the, the trials and the tribulations of that time. The Prophet ﷺ could easily, and he did to some individuals, when some people asked the Prophet ﷺ, you're not going to experience it. Because the Prophet ﷺ knew that 
the time of his time was not going to be a time of fitan. He وسلم, knew that within his time, the signs of the last day are not going to appear. He knew that the sa'a was not going to be established while the Prophet وسلم, was there. Yet he responded to, responded to those questions, did he not? Did he not answer those questions? Did he not say, when you see this, he didn't say, when after you, the generations will come and they will experience this and they will see this. No, he said, when you see this, then do this. When you see these type of fitan occur, then this is how you must respond. Because that message that he was delivering to that specific companion wasn't specifically for that companion. It was for all of us. All of us who came after the Prophet ﷺ and his noble companions. So this is why when we say the Prophet ﷺ being that, that head of that civilization and being the leader, the Prophet ﷺ had to face questions that we, 1400 and so years later, we still find uncomfortable and we don't want to discuss them, we don't want to talk about them, we brush them underneath our carpets. And the Prophet ﷺ never did that. In fact, at times the Prophet ﷺ would use his platform on the mimbar during his khutbas to educate the people, to educate the masses about those issues and about those topics. You know, he looked at he looked at traditional and cultural issues of that time and he resolved them. When he heard that there were people who would bury their daughters alive, the Prophet ﷺ ensured that people understood the value of their children, the value of their daughters. Whoever uh, raises, has two daughters, raises them morally upright as upright citizens of the community and who marries them off into good homes, who give them a good upbringing, a good education, me and that person will be like this on Yawmul Qiyamah. And he indicated with his two fingers, his index and his middle finger, that this is going to be the closeness and the proximity of me with that individual who experiences that. The Prophet wasallam gave, gave people qadr. He gave them, he gave them uh, uh, an understanding of, of, of their priorities. And children were, of course, among the number one priorities that we have. And, and the, it, the same is for us today. Because when you get older and when you have children, first, you know, at the beginning, before you have children, it's all about you, isn't it? It's all about me. How am I going to live my life? What am I going to need? What am I going to do? What car am I going to drive? What house am I going to live in? Me, me, me. And you know, our parents always taught us this. You know, when you have children of your own, then you're going to realize your responsibilities. And when you did have children of your own, then you realize, you know what? It's not about me anymore. You know, I need to create an environment that, that, that uh, my children can be brought up in and be morally upright that can be religious, that can be in tune with their religion and be representatives of the Prophet ﷺ. I want that for them. No matter how, and you know the amazing thing is, no matter how terrible of a person you are, how terrible, and I shouldn't say this, terrible of a Muslim, because you know, we're all Muslims and we all commit, sometimes we do terrible things. No matter how bad of a Muslim you may seem to think that you are, when it comes to your children, you're going to want the best for them. If you don't pray, you're still going to want your children to pray. If you don't give sadaqah, you're still going to encourage your children to give sadaqah. If you don't do certain, if you don't fulfill certain religious requirements, 
you're still going to want to your children to fulfill those religious requirements. You're going to want that for them because it's a natural parental instinct, isn't it? It's a parental instinct that we want our children to be better. We want our children to be better than us. We want our children to be the best representatives of the religion that they could possibly be. And we're in that time now when we are not so perfect, but we want our children to be perfect. But yet our children are being raised in a society where things are not perfect. This is, this is not the perfect environment. I, I don't think there is a perfect environment, in fact, where you, know, you can say this is a perfect environment to raise your children and to be totally committed to the servitude of Allah and the following of, of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You know, unless you found a, 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 an island um, completely off-grid where it's just you and your family and nobody else, I don't think you'll, ha- you'll find that environment anywhere, whether that be here in, in, in Western Europe or whether that be towards the East or the Middle East or wherever, whatever country you come from. You're not going to find that perfect environment because the prophet the perfect environment only existed with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam when he established the state of medina that was a perfect environment after the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam fitan began to to occur right and things became more difficult so we have to find tenable solutions for the problems that we face ourselves by reflecting on the life of the prophet by looking by consulting the quran and the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so in terms of our children, what I want to discuss today, and I did say that some of the issues that I'm going to talk about, they're extremely sensitive, but the Prophet ﷺ never shied away from them. The Prophet ﷺ never answered a question with no. You don't need to know this. This is not important for you to learn. The Prophet ﷺ answered all of those, those questions the way those questions deserve to be answered, no matter how uncomfortable they may have seemed. Now, as parents, we hold enormous leverage in terms of what our children are exposed to and in terms of what our children learn. How they grow up as citizens of the country in which we reside and ultimately as followers of the religion of the Prophet Naturally, each and every one of us wants to raise our children in accordance with the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet And Allah Subhanahu wa Taala encourages us that in the Quran, in the verse that I read before you in my khutbah, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Ya amanu," and this is directly uh, focusing on us, the people who believe. Oh, you who believe, ku anfusakum nara. Ward off yourselves and your families from the fire. Protect yourselves and your families from the fire. And ward yourselves off from and your families against a fire whose fuel is men and stones over which are appointed angels who are stern and severe and they never disobey the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he does what and they do whatever they have been commanded to do by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's imperative, we're given a warning here, right? a standard in the Quran, that your duty is not only to protect yourselves, you know, that nafsi, nafsi, me thing comes in. You know, it's just about me, 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 until you have your children, then you realize it's not just about me anymore. I've got children, I've got little beings that I need to take care of. And whatever I do reflects on them. Whatever I do, they're going to follow me. 
So your duty then becomes not only to protect yourself from the fire, but now to protect your children. That's your duty. That's your responsibility. And each and every one of us has that responsibility. And it should be ingrained within our minds. And in order for us to do that correctly and properly, we have to understand that children have a right. And their right is to be raised responsibly as Muslim adults. Their right is to, for you to give them a good education. The Prophet wasallam said that you know, when he talked about those two, uh, uh, that individual who raises two daughters properly with a, with a proper upbringing, with good education and marries them off into good homes and me and that person will be like this on your Qiyamah. Be saying that that individual will be close to me in exactly the same way the Prophet wasallam said, whoever has a child gives him a good name and gives him good manners. That individual will be from among the people of Jannah. Right? So it's our duty. Not only is it our duty, we're going to be rewarded for it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to, be, is going to reward us for that. Why? Because it's our responsibility. Allah subhanahu, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in a hadith reported by Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umar, radiyallahu ta'ala anhuma, he states, he states that each and every one of you is a shepherd. Think of yourself as a shepherd. Each and every one of you is a shepherd and each and every one of you is responsible for your flock. فَالْأَمِيرُ And then the Prophet وسلم, then goes into specifics. فَالْأَمِيرُ رَائِن وَهُوَ مَسْؤُولٌ And the leader, the Amir, he's, respons- he's, he's, he's a shepherd and he's responsible too. وَالرَّجُلُ رَائِن عَلَىٰ أَحْلِهِ وَهُوَ مَسْؤُولٌ And the man is a shepherd of the people of his house and he's responsible for the of, people of his house. So as a man, you are responsible for your children. And the woman, in exactly the same way, is responsible for her house. She's responsible for, for her children because she's a shepherd to them. And each and every one of you is a shepherd and each and every one of you is responsible for your flock. This is our responsibility. Our children, our responsibility, not somebody else's. You know, it's, it's a sad state of affairs and I've had to deal with this myself with, with, with members of the public. I've had to deal with, it, with our Muslim brothers and sisters whose children are being taken away from them and, 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 and put into care. Uh, due to the issues that they face within their marriages. Uh, I've had to deal with, with parents uh, who's, who, who have become separated and their children are bearing the brunt of that separation. Right? It's imperative that we always understand, no matter what your relationship is with your wife, even if you, if you, uh, if you have a good marriage or you've separated or you've divorced, your children are still your number one priority. They're still your concern. You still have to give them shower upon them the same level of love and affection that they are deserving of, that they deserve. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them their, that right because you're responsible for them. You're their shepherd. And being the shepherd, you need to understand. Now, you know, children today are not the same as the children that were born 40 years ago. When you were children, the environment was different. To the children that are, to the environment that children are born in today, in exactly the same way, 1400 years ago, the children that were born to the Sahaba, they were different. Their responsibilities, the Sahaba's responsibilities towards them were different, and that's interchangeable. That's going to change with time. 
Because as time changes, the world, as time moves on, the world changes. And we have to understand those changes and then appropriate them with, with the foundation being our religion, the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet wasallam, the example of our prior predecessors. We have to do that. So we have a, a, a more difficult job than the people of the past. Because as society moves on, it progresses. And sometimes progressively, we are regressing. You know, we're progressing in terms of, of technology. The technology we have today is different from the technology we had 10 years ago and 20 years ago, 30 years ago. 30 years ago, you didn't know what a cell phone or a mobile phone was. 20 years ago, your mobile phones you had to carry in briefcases. Right? Did you not? Some of you here, you know this, right? The, the phones were, were about this big and this wide. And you had to carry them in your briefcases. Nowadays, they're, they're, so, they're so small that you can fit into your pockets, the smallest of your pockets, and not even realize that they are there. You can lose them so easily. 30 years ago or 20 years ago, you couldn't lose those big, massive, huge phones. So technology progresses, and as technology progresses, certain things become regressive. When technology progresses and we realize the vastness of the universe, then what happens? It leads people to make certain claims. And those certain claims can be, oh, well, you know what? The, the, the universe came from one big bang. And suddenly everything magically fell into place. Perfect order. And it's continuing in this perfect order. At the perfect angles. In the perfect, uh, uh, in the perfect direct, in a perfect direction. With the perfect distance away from each other, all these planets are. Everything is perfect. Well, we say as Muslims that, that, that perfection is attributed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But that belief has become regressive. Because we asked for proof. Whereas the proof is right there in nature that everything is perfect. And perfect cannot come out of imperfection. Perfection cannot come from imperfection. Perfection has to come from perfection. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is perfect. And he's created this world in such a way that there are no imperfections within it. If that sun that we have that grants, that, that grants life to our crops with the permission, with the izn of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? That changes night into day and day into night for our population. If that sun was closer to the earth, everything would burn. Nothing would be able to survive. If that sun was further away from the earth, not by a huge margin, by even a small margin, that everything would freeze. Nothing would be able to grow. So everything is in perfect unison. But that belief has become regressive. Therefore, we need to teach our children. Our children are being taught about evolution in schools. That man evolved from a monkey. Man evolved from, from, uh, uh, from a, 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 an organism, a genetic organism that, that wasn't a human being. And belief in, 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 in man coming from Sayyidina Adam salam, and his wife being created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the first being, that belief has become regressive. We need to find ways to counter that. Even a hundred years ago, this belief was a belief that was adopted by the vast majority of the population upon this earth. Fifty years ago, this belief was adopted by the vast majority of the population upon this earth. But now it's become regressive. And what we're finding is that Muslims are questioning their faith. They're saying, well, look at the scientific, the scientific evolution that we have. 
And our religion doesn't answer those questions, but it does. We're not seeking the answers in the right places. We're not getting the answers from the right people. And we have to start that from a young age. 20, 30 years ago, and still now, what was common? It was common that marriage was, was between a man and a woman. Now, in, in, in many countries in the world, and this is the truth, and this is something that we have to face up to, that it's possible for a man and a man to get married. It's possible for a woman and a woman to get married to each other. You know, I'm not saying that that uh, particular group of people or those individuals who believe in that deserve some sort of punishment from me or for you. You know, Allah is the judge. Right? That Allah is the judge over those beliefs and over those practices, not you and I. But what I am saying is that in our religion, when our children are being taught this in their schools, when our children are being encouraged to participate in such activities that promote that type of behavior, then we need to know about it. How many of you know that um, uh, even now, right now, and over the last sort of, I think, six or seven years, since, since 2011, 2012, your children are being taught sexual education, sexual education in schools. Well, they've always been taught a form of sexual education in school, as you were and I was when we were in schools. Right? But it was at an appropriate age. We were taught the anatomy of the human body in terms of our biology. And from there on, we were taught sexual education. Well, now the age has been limited even further. And it's been like this. It's been going down. It's come down to primary school. And now, by next year, by the end of 2019, in fact, certain schools will already be teaching children as young as five regarding sexual education. Young as five. And not only will, will they be taught sex education, they'll be taught relationship education. And that relationship education includes um, values that promote the LGBT community. They'll be taught that it's okay. You know, it's okay, it's absolutely fine that, you know, uh, a man and a man for a man and a man to get married and a woman and a woman to get married and have children. It's fine for that to occur. It's fine for you to not characterize you in terms of the gender that you are. You know, if you feel like you're a boy, if, you, if you're a boy and you feel like you're a girl, that's absolutely fine. This is going to be taught to five-year-olds in your schools, in our schools. Now, there's perhaps not, when we, when we talk about the actual, um, the teaching of it, there's perhaps not, that, not much that we can do to take that away. We can continue to protest and we can continue to write to our schools and we can continue to protest this type of education for our children because our children at the age of five are too young to understand. It's confusing for them. A child of five is, uh, is still growing, his brain is still developing. Right? And certain information is, is only going to confuse that child. And especially the types of values that we don't want to ingrain within our children. Those values are being taught. So how should we counter it? How should we counter it? We have to counter it by talking to our children, by teaching our children, and by training our children from a young age. I can tell you this, and I can say this with absolute certainty, because I have been through this, and I know many of you have as well. You were taught, you and I, 
We were taught about sex education when we went into uh, uh, school and uh, we uh, found out from, from, our, from our social sphere that we were in or in terms of the biology lessons that we were taught. How many of you can honestly say that my first foray into this type of education, into the education of, of, of families and the upbringing of families was taught by my parents? was taught to me by my, my imam in the local masjid. Very few of us can claim to do that. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. And this is, this, is a, this is not an example going too far away. I have members in, in my family. I, I remember I was traveling with them once. And this is, this is about four or five years ago. I was traveling with them once. And we were traveling over a long distance. And usually when you're traveling up to 100 miles, you, you get into a conversation. There's seven of you in a you know, in a car. Uh, and, and there's seven of us, and we're, we're traveling in this seven-seater, and uh, all of us are, are men. And some of them are relatives of mine who were older than me, considerably older, 10, 15 years older. And one individual from among, when you find a, a, an alim or a scholar or, or an imam, then suddenly, and you've got him alone in an, in, in an enclosed environment, suddenly you start bombarding him with questions. So naturally, I was bombarded by questions from them. They thought, you know, the, all those questions that they thought they couldn't ask before, they've got the opportunity now. So one of them asked me about uh, uh, purification, ghusl. <coughs> and he said uh, something along the lines of, um, you, you know, when ghusl becomes uh, wajib upon you um, after intercourse, then uh, what is that type of ghusl? If he, no, he asked me the question, if you do that ghusl, do you have to do wudu afterwards to pray? And I said, once you've completed the ghusl, you're purified, you're pure, right? It's recommended that you can do wudu over that, but even if you weren't to do wudu, your ghusl would still be complete. And I said, but as long as the requirements of the ghusl are there, that your entire body must be washed, not a single hair, on the body, not a single part of the body must remain dry. It has to be washed. You have to rinse your mouth. And you have to rinse your nose. Take water into your nose. You have to fulfill these requirements and your ghusl is complete. And one of the other brothers, and he was about 35, 36 years old at the time. He had five children. He had been married for about 15 years. He says, no, yeah, but, but that's like a normal bath. And, but do you have... You have to do that. You have to wash your entire body. You have to rinse your mouth and rinse your nose after every time you have intercourse. And I says to him, yes. And he says, by Allah, I never knew that. He was 35 years old. He had five children. Been married for 15 years. He didn't know that. And he said, but my, my father didn't, my parents didn't teach this to me when I was young. And I went to the masjid. I went to the local masjid to learn how to read the Qur'an and for my Islamic studies. And I never, I never encountered this, this theology or this, this type of education. Nobody taught this to me. And what we find is, and, and the answer to his question is why that didn't happen. The problem is that the parents at home feel somewhat shy and uncomfortable in discussing these, children, uh, these, these issues with their children of their cleanliness. For young boys, what type of cleanliness? What, what's the hair that they must cut? Right? They're uncomfortable in talking about those issues. And then they send their children, and I've just realized the time is three minutes over, so I'm finishing, finishing off now. And so they send their children off 
to the masjid thinking, well, you know what? We're uncomfortable, but we've sent them to the masjid. Imam Sahib will, will surely discuss these issues with them. And when they come to the masjid with Imam Sahib or the madrasa teacher, he thinks to himself, well, I'll teach them the Quran and other Islamic studies and their fiqh and everything else. But, you know, surely some of these uncomfortable issues that I have to discuss, the parents must have mentioned this or spoke to them about this at home. So what happens is the child goes through this, this life not understanding and losing out. And it's imperative that we take that risk. Don't, don't leave that responsibility. Your children's education is your responsibility, number one. Then somebody else's. Don't deflect it upon somebody else. It's imperative that you talk to your children. It's imperative that you, uh, you approach them with sensitivity. You understand some of the issues that they're facing. You know, these, these, the problems are increasing and they're going to increase. The gender issues that we're facing here, they're going to increase. Don't think for one moment it's limited to non-Muslims. It's not. By Allah, it's not. You'll find this within your own communities. It may be brushed underneath the carpet, but it's there. It's prevalent. So your job and your duty as a parent, as, an, as the primary educator, is to teach your children. And don't shy away from discussing those issues and those topics. Because by Allah, in their schools, when they go to schools, their teachers in schools who are teaching them sex education are not shying away from those topics. They're teaching them as much as they possibly can. And that, that information is not the correct information that we would like our children to learn. So if you want your children to grow up in a, uh, in a society, a society that promotes tolerance and social justice, Right? that promotes uh, gender equality, then we need not look further than our own faith because our religion promotes exactly the same values. And teach them in accordance with your religion. From a young age, find ways in which you can approach those topics. Right? Mothers, my, my, my sisters who are here, the same thing goes to you as a mother, you're a primary educator. Right? You have to take these responsibilities. Don't just drop them off and think, I drop them off to school at 9 o'clock and pick them up at 3.30 or 3.15 and that's it. I don't have any other duties and roles beyond that. You do. You have a responsibility. And it's time that we start taking this responsibility seriously. You know, you, you buy your children everything that they need. You buy them your clothes and you buy them their toys. You buy them everything. That, you put a roof over their heads and you feed, their, you feed them. You keep their bellies full and you think that's your job. No, it's far more than that. Your duty is to encourage them. Your, your duty is as their brain develops that you have to teach them and train them and, and develop it in the right way, in the correct way. That's your duty. And it's a God-given duty by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ku anfusakum wa ahlikum nara. Protect and ward off yourselves and your families from the fire. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give me a new tawfiq and the ability to act upon the teachings of the Quran, the noble sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect our children from immorality. Um, from misguidance, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to train and to educate our children in the correct way.